<clears throat> yeah, and so we won't, when's our next date we're back in class? January 9th. 9th. It's always a weird time at Christmas when we don't have class for a little bit, so it's a bummer, but it's good for everybody to be with their families and take a break. Okay, let's say a quick prayer and then we'll jump right in. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we bless you and praise you tonight. Uh, and on the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, Jesus, we ask you to fill us tonight with all the blessings we need. Uh, I ask you to calm our hearts. Uh, we give you this time. May it draw clo us closer to you. Uh, may you bless all those who are here tonight, those who couldn't make it. Uh, we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, isn't Father Mike insane? Well, he's job. He's getting, he won't tell you that. He's getting, <clears throat> you know he's getting a doctorate. But what he won't tell you is that he's getting a doctorate from the toughest uh, scripture school that exists on earth. So, he should, he speaks like nine languages. Okay, <clears throat> so here we go. So, it sounds like Father Mike didn't want to do the topic that I wanted him to do last week. And I was like, you can do whatever you want to do. Um, so we, we're, I want to go back to where we're at. And the question we're at right now, here's a way. If, how many of you are from a Protestant background? Okay, a fair number of you. So if you're from a Protestant background, the question that we're getting at right now is, it's a question that's very common, and the way it's sometimes phrased is, isn't Jesus enough? So oftentimes, um, Christians who are not Catholic, what they'll say to Catholics is they'll say, isn't Jesus enough? Like, why do you have to have the church? And if you remember two classes ago, we talked about Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember that? This means yes. This means no. Yes. So what, does anybody remember what was kind of the main thing about that? What was the point of those two chapters, Matthew 16 and Matthew 7? This is... Good. Yeah, neat. Right, exactly. This is where... Right in Matthew 7, Jesus says, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man. And who's the wise man in the Bible? Solomon. Solomon. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. Right? And then we have the three little pigs. I told the... I was preaching on this at Mass one day, and it sounds like the three little pigs, right? Like the, um, <clears throat> Jesus says, the, uh, the storms came and the rains fell and the winds blew, but the house stood because it had been set solidly on rock, which to me always sounds like I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. Three little pigs stole that from Jesus, I think. Anyway, 
But then we looked at Matthew 16, right? And when we hear anyone who hears these words of mine and does them, people tend to think, okay, I need to listen to Jesus's words, which is true. And it does mean that. But first, Jesus shows us in Matthew 16 that he's actually the wise man. Who is is Solomon's father? King David, right? And all through the New Testament, we hear Jesus being called the son of David, which means that that's a way that Jews talk about kings. And Jesus is descended from King David. Yeah, Steve. That's a tricky question. Joseph is. Um, but it's really funny. The, um, the New Testament genealogy is what they do when they trace Jesus all the way back to David. Genealogy, as Jewish, as, as Jewish people do it, goes through the father. And so if you read those genealogies, it says, David was the father of Solomon, and Sol- Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asaph, and Asaph, and on and on and on. And all the way it goes down and it says, and uh, Jacob was the father of Joseph, and it doesn't say who was the father of Jesus. Why doesn't it say that? Because Joseph isn't the father of Jesus, right? Jesus is born of a virgin. Only God is Jesus' father. In the New Testament, Jesus only calls God his father. He never once, never once does he call Joseph his father. But so it says, uh, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Christ. One side note is that scripture scholars, there's speculation that Mary was also a descendant of David in some way, that she was of a royal household. In Romans chapter 1, we could look at the verse if you want. It says that Jesus was descended from David, kata sarkon, according to the flesh. That he was descended from David according to the flesh, but Jesus' flesh only comes through Mary. And so some scholars see that as a reference to Mary being of David's line as well. Yeah. Does it explain why she was? Partially, if that's if she's of Davidic line, right? Partially. There's more to it, and we'll see that when we talk about Mary. I know a lot of you are gonna have a lot of questions about Mary. We're gonna get to that. All the questions you want me to answer, you're like, when are we gonna get there? Some of you are like, some of your problems that some of you have are like Mary, purgatory, male priesthood, uh, papacy, those kinds of things. That's coming pretty quick. The, the rest of you, and maybe you have both, the, the rest of you are like, when are we going to talk about gay marriage, contraception, premarital sex, abortion, those things? We're going to talk about those too, but those are a little later. But I promise we'll get to all of that. But, it, but back to this really quick to last time we talked. The big point of that whole thing is that in Matthew 16, right? Remember Matthew, Matthew 7 was the wise man builds a house on rock. Solomon is the son of David who built the temple on a giant rock in Jerusalem. And then Jesus in Matthew 16 says, you are Peter, which means what? Rock. And I don't know if I made this point last time. 
Peter is not a name in the first century. It's not a name. It's like if I turned to Mary over here and I said, Mary, your new name is Whiteboard. Whiteboard. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of something. It's not a name. Peter is not a name. It, it just means rock. It's very strange that Jesus does that. So Jesus is the new Solomon. He's the one who builds and he builds his church on rock. And just like in Matthew 7, right, it says the storms can come and the rains might fall and the wind might blow, but the house is going to stand. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus shows us that he's the new wise man. He's the Solomon. And then the big point I wanted to get across last time is that the one who founds the church is not St. Peter. It's not St. Paul. It's Jesus. And he's very clear about that in Matthew 16. And notice that he says, right, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, <clears throat> that was last time. Real briefly, you want to hear about Guadalupe? Question, Katie? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so the church, so Mary's, we'll get that when we talk to Mary, about Mary. We're going to talk about how Mary is a perfect image of the church. But the image I'm, off, I'm working off of in that homily really quickly is a constellation. So this is from Hansers von Balthasar. So if that's the Big Dipper, I was really happy I thought of that because I can draw the Big Dipper. Kind of. Here we go. Right? If that's the Big Dipper, one of the things, the church we're going to see, the church is communion. It's, it's a family, and we're going to talk about this tonight, that the church is not, and being a Christian is not just being God. We're going to talk a lot about that tonight. When you love God, you're brought into a family or a constellation. And what Balthazar says is that the church is a, is a constellation of stars, that move in relationship to each other. So the New Testament can use all of those figures to talk about the church as images of, of real things within the church. So Mary, Peter, Paul, James, Mary Magdalene, Salome, right? Like all these people, they embody really good things in the life of the church and they're examples of really good things in the church. But the church is a consolation. It's a communion. It's a community. It's not just one, one person. She's both, but we'll, let's punt on that because that's just going further than I want to go with that tonight. Okay, real quick. You want to hear about Guadalupe? Because today is the feast day. Do you guys know what Guadalupe is or who Guadalupe is? <laughs> Did Mary appear to 
Yeah, so Mary appeared in 1531 outside Mexico City on a little hill called Tepeyac. And there's a long history of the name Guadalupe, but we won't get into that too much. But what happened is that Mary, and why would God do this? Why would God send his, his mother to appear? Well, the church is universal. And what happened was, so does anybody know what year the Reformation started? Good, 1517, right? And if you don't know the Reformation, right, is, the, is when the Protestant churches were started. In 1517. So Martin Luther, in 1517, he's the first person to start the Protestant churches. And in 1517, he took a, he, there's actually doubt that he actually did this historically, but we'll just go with the traditional story, is he nailed uh, 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And so, for a lot of you, this is new. We're going to talk about this as well. But almost any Christian you meet today who is not a Catholic, this is the start of their churches. Was in the 16th century. So people who talk about when they say, like, I'm a Lutheran or I'm a Presbyterian or a Methodist. Presbyterians and Methodists are actually later than this. Um, or if they'd say I'm a Baptist or I'm, uh, the, the big movement today is people just say I'm a Christian, right? And <clears throat> this always opens more worms than I want to. But people who are like non-denominational or evangelical Christians, mega church Christians, those kinds of things, those all, the, the, the original roots start here in 1517. Um, so here's, here's the interesting thing. So that happens in 1517. Mary appears in Mexico City in 1531. <coughs> and the really cool thing, so she appears and there's this very poor farmer, peasant, named, who we now know as Saint Juan Diego. His feast day was yesterday. So Mary appears on this hill in a place called Tepeyac, and she appears, and here's the, here's the message. When she appeared to Juan Diego, she appeared as a native Mexican. I don't know, they probably didn't use that term then, right? Mestizo, Mestizo thank you. She appeared there, and she's, she even says to him, she says, am I not here who am your mother? And she says, am I not one of you? And then the message here is that God doesn't belong just to like Israel or to Europeans or to like people in Italy, but God actually belongs to the whole world and so does his mother. And so Mary appears as a native to St. Juan Diego. Now what happens, she asks him, it's a very cool story and I just, I'll go on forever as you know I can, so I want to cut this short. But what happened was, she said to him, I want you to go to the bishop and ask him to build a church on this hill. And Juan Diego says, why don't you send somebody else? Which is what you would say, and me, 
I'd be like, um, there's this great priest, Father Sam Moorhead. He's three miles that way. Here's his number. Call him. But Juan Diego goes, and of course, no one believes him. And so a couple days pass, and he goes back to the hill, and he tells Mary, he says, the bishop says you have to prove to him that you're actually really who you say you are. And so she says, okay, I will give him a sign. And so she's, and they were at the bottom of the hill at that point. Mary goes up to the top of the hill with him. They climb the hill and there's, and it's in the middle of the desert. And on top of the hill are a bunch of gorgeous, fully bloomed red roses. And she says, this is the sign you will give to the bishop. So Juan Diego takes his cloak, and it's called the tilma, and it's made out of cactus fiber. Juan Diego takes his tilma, and he fills his tilma with all these roses. And he goes to the bishop, and he actually tied his cloak in a knot to be able to hold all these roses. And he goes to the bishop. Sorry, I'm going to get emotional. It's so powerful. He goes to the bishop, and the bishop is kind of annoyed and I kind of get this way because every, every once in a while you have like crazy Catholics. I've had this. You have these crazy Catholics and they're like, Father Brian, Mary appeared to me. And I'm like, sure she did. I'm like, you know what? Father Sam Moorhead is three miles down the road. You should tell him about that. Because there are crazy people. There's a lot of crazy people. I'm skeptical, right? Mary does not appear very often in history. So anyway, the bishop doesn't believe her. He's kind of annoyed that this guy's back. And he finally lets him in, and he says, where's the proof? Um, and so Juan Diego drops his cloak. The roses fall out, but a miraculous image is imprinted on his cloak the moment he drops the roses. And that image is the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It is a miraculous image. If you don't, this is one of those things we don't have time tonight. You should go study this. It is one of the most amazing artifacts that exists in the entire world. First of all, it shouldn't still, it shouldn't have held together, right? It's, it's over 500 years old now, or not over, almost 500 years. Um, but it's, it's a 500-year-old clo- piece of clothing made from cactus fiber. It should not still exist. But the, the craziest thing about it, there's a number of things. Mary in it, like I said, she's mestizo. She, she's one of the Mexican people. They're suffering a lot at that time. And what happens, right, in Europe, the church is split in half. And like half of European Christians leave the Catholic church, basically. And they become Protestants. Almost the, it's, it's amazing, almost the exact same number of people enter the Catholic Church in the years following the apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's fascinating stuff. Okay, but on and on. <clears throat> so Mary appears, she's a native, and she communicates to them in a way they would understand. The image shows that she's pregnant. Um, and then my favorite thing about this is that in her eyes is actually the image of the bishop. And modern ophthalmologists will look at the image 
And Mary's eyes are, are uh, uh, um, how do I say that word? Anatomically, thank you, correct. And probably the most miraculous thing is they don't fully know how the image is on the cactus fiber. There's, there's parts of paint that have peeled off from the tilma, but it's been proven that those were later additions to the actual image. And it almost seems like the image is burned or something like that into the fiber of the cactus itself. It's crazy. That image, right, that's the one you see all over the place, right? When, you, when, you, when you're around Hispanic Catholics, there's just images of Our Lady of Guadalupe everywhere. This is where it comes from. And today is that feast day. Um, amazing stuff. And I really challenge you, go, go look this up. The cathedral in Mexico City, the tilma is framed above the altar in Mexico City at Tepeyac, at the cathedral of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's amazing stuff. Yeah. So it's the feast day, usually that's when someone Yep. This is the day that the roses, the, 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 the roses fell out of Juan Diego's cloak. Is today. Yeah. Um, yep. Mestizo, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's not, we don't believe in like the transmigration of souls. So what we believe is, right, this is, this is the actual mother of God, Mary, mother of Jesus, who it's the same exact person, but that God can do anything. And so Mary, we believe, died 2,000 years ago or didn't die, we'll talk about that. It was, it was brought to heaven, but that this was that God sent her as a way to bring the gospel and to bring mercy and love to the peoples of Mexico in that time. So it's actually Mary. So we don't believe it was like someone who was living in Mexico for a long time. It said Mary just appeared at that time, just in that place. But she, but her, she lives in heaven. She's raised from the dead kind of thing. One more. Yep, soul and body together. So with that, if she came back looking at a different body, what's her explanation? So the question is, if Mary came back, if Catholics believe it, that the resurrection is soul and body, how can we, how, Mary looks different. How, how, does, how do we explain that? Well, it's really easy to explain. When Jesus rises from the dead, for instance, in Luke 24, you have two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. Right, and in John 21, when the 12 apostles, not 12 anymore because Judas is, you know, we'll get to that later. <clears throat> when the apostles see Jesus on the Sea of Galilee in John 21, they don't recognize him. He also, with his body, when you have a glorified body, right, Jesus, can, he can't suffer anymore. He can walk through walls. It's not, even though it is you, it doesn't mean that like you're just going to look exactly like yourself. Okay, we got a lot to cover tonight. I know you're shocked by that. 
Um, so here we go. So the three questions, right? If you're going to be a Catholic, you have to answer, what are the three? That's the second one, but yes. Does God exist? Is Jesus God? Okay, you guys wake up tonight. I'm like, is Jesus God? Is there a God? Right, what's the third? Bam! Amen, right? Did Jesus give authority to the Catholic Church? That's what we're getting right now. Did he give authority to the Catholic Church? That's a huge question. For most of you, you've probably never answered that before, whether you're Catholic or not. It's a hugely important question. So here we go. So part of the reason that Jesus comes to earth is that Jesus wants to make God the Father present to the world. So look at your sheet. And I just, tonight we have a bunch of scripture quotes. So John chapter 1, 118, very first quote there. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Then here's, this one's my favorite. John chapter 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and still you do not know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We'll do these other two, but do you see already what's happening? Is that God himself is not visible to human beings. But by the Son of God becoming a human being, entering into time in a body that he makes the father present. Right, so Philip, so Jesus can say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. By the way, this is, you know how, I think we talked about this one night. You ever feel like the God of the Old Testament is like the bad God and he's like bad cop and then Jesus is the good cop? This means yes. This means, I know you've all thought that, right? Well, it's not true. There were early Christians who wanted to throw out the Old Testament. They said, we don't like this Old Testament. Let's get rid of that. And the, the church said, we can't do it. It's one story. And, and the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the same God. And part of it is because of this Jesus, if you want to know what God the Father is like, and some of us, I know like when I was a kid, and even still sometimes today, it's easy to relate to Jesus, right? And I haven't seen this movie because I think it's almost certainly blasphemous, so I wouldn't watch it. But I know a little bit about it. But like, you know, does anybody know that movie Dogma? Like, it's like early 2000s, I want to say. Well, if you haven't seen it, don't. Um, I haven't, at least. But anyway, but I always think of that image, right? There's like Buddy Jesus is one of the statues, right? There's a statue of Jesus, and he's just like... And... Sometimes I feel like that with Jesus. Like, I relate to Jesus. He was a human being. Like, I know he loves me. But God the Father seems scary. 
and I can't relate to him, and I don't know who he is. What the New Testament teaches us is that if you see, you want to know what God the Father's like? Do you want to know what the Father's like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the presence of God in the world. He makes the Father present. And when, if your image of God the Father is an angry tyrant who's upset because he hasn't had his coffee yet, you have, you have the wrong image of the Father. That's not who God is. Jesus reveals the Father. Okay, a couple more readings. So this is Colossians 1, and it's talking about Jesus. I love this. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, just think about that for one second. He is the image of the invisible God. Imagine like, yeah, imagine someone saying, hey, I want you to draw something invisible. You can't do it, right? But, but what Colossians is getting at, and St. Paul here in Colossians, is he's telling us that Jesus makes the Father present. Next quote from Mark 6. This is kind of a cool one. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, and I bolded this. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. We'll come back to that, hopefully in the class on the Eucharist. Um, but here's what's, what's cool about that one. Yeah, Jennifer. Um, they mean, so it's debated, but, not, but it doesn't mean favorite. Um, what, what that is getting at is actually most likely it's about the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus happens on what day of the week? Sunday. And so when did, what was the first, what was the day that God said, let there be light? And then Genesis. First day, which is what day of the week? Sunday. And the New Testament says that the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of a new creation. So, that, so really what that's about is that, Jennifer. But that, that, that takes us a field. I want to keep going. But with Mark 6, what's happening here? So Jesus walks on water, right? You'd be a little freaked out if you saw that too. Um, and he's, he calms the storm. He walks on the water. And then he says, do not be afraid. And what he says in Greek, he says this, ego eimi. Ego eimi, sorry, I wrote it in Greek. Um, ego eimi. Um, <clears throat> so ego eimi in Greek, that is the way that in the, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 3.14, when God appears to Moses at the burning bush, Moses 
talks to God and he says, what am I, if I go back to Egypt and I fear people and they ask me, what's the name of this God? What am I supposed to tell them? Do you remember what he says? He says, I am. Tell them I am sent you. That is literally what this is. Literally, that's what that means. I am. Jesus doesn't say it is I. That's not what that means in Greek. He walks on the water. He calms a storm. And he says, do not be afraid. I am. Jesus is the presence of God the Father in the world. Okay. Here's the next point. This is huge. Like all things in RCIA, Jesus makes the Father present, and, he, and most Christians get that. Most Christians understand that. Here's where Catholics are different, and if you're going to be Catholic, this is a huge point tonight. We're going to be talking about it again next time in, you know, six months when we meet again. Is that the church makes Jesus present. The church is, so people say, Father Brian, like, okay, I love Jesus. He's merciful. He's good. He died for me. He rose from the dead. Can I just have a relationship with Jesus? Why do I need the church? And here's the point. The church exists because Jesus lived and died 2,000 years ago, right? And people say, and they say to me all the time, they say, Father Brian, how am I supposed to know if Jesus was God? I was not there. Right? I didn't live with him. I didn't see him. I didn't touch his body. I didn't see, you know, him appear in the upper room. The Catholic answer to this, the New Testament answer to this, is that that is not true. It's that Jesus founded the church so that he would always be present in the world. The church is the presence of Jesus Christ in the world. Did I see hands go up? So just hang with me. Let's read a couple quotes. Look at your sheet. So the church makes Jesus present. Meanwhile, Saul, this is Acts chapter 9. Does anybody know that who Saul is? Yeah, Saul, this is, and this is the passage where it's going to happen. Saul becomes Paul. His name's going to be changed. This is the man who wrote essentially two-thirds of the New Testament. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, is that a great phrase? Did you, have any of you ever done that? Have you been breathing threats? <sighs> okay. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, which is the first name for Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, 
Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? No, he doesn't say that. So I check if you're awake or not, right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the people who love me? Why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting my disciples? Jesus appears to St. Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Why? Because the church is the presence of Jesus Christ in the world. A couple more and then we'll pause and talk about it, maybe take a break. Here's one of my favorites. I know I say that about everything. So in Matthew 10 here, um, Jesus takes the 12 apostles and he says, and by the way, well, do we want to get there? Why is Jesus, let's do it. Why does Jesus have 12 apostles? Why not like, you know, 10 is just a nicer number. Rounds off a little easier. There's 10 commandments. Like, why? Okay, good. That's right, Steve. So there's 12 tribes of what? Of Israel, right? And in the Old Testament, if you're a Jew, what is, is, what is Israel? Okay, Jacob is the father of Israel, or he is Israel. I'm asking, I'm, I asked that question really weird. I'm playing read my mind. What is Israel? You're like... I don't know. <laughs> it's a country. <laughs> Here's what I'm getting at. Israel is the family of God in the Old Testament. That's what Israel is. Israel is the family of God. And if you want to know if you're in God's family, the question is, are you a Jew? That's, that's the whole point, that you're a member of the family. And so when Jesus appoints 12 apostles, what he's doing is he's starting a new Israel. But this one, this one isn't going to be just for people of a certain ethnic descent. It's going to be for everyone. It's going to be Catholic. It's going to be universal. I didn't put this on your sheet, but two kind of cool things about that. So let me read you a passage from Ephesians chapter 2. All right. In Ephesians 2, here's what St. Paul says. He says, he's talking to non-Jews. And he's talking about their life before Jesus came. He says, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. You were outsiders. You had nobody. You didn't belong. You didn't belong to God. You weren't a part of the family, is what Paul is saying. Having no hope and without God in the world. A little harsh, but that's what Paul says. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. And he goes on and on, and I want to jump down to verse 18. It says, 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners. You're You're not outsiders anymore. You're not aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, right? You're part of the new family. And and here's the key verse I want to get to, verse 20. That house is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Right, the, the new house of God is built on the 12 apostles. There's an old family of God that was the 12 patriarchs. The new family of God has 12 apostles. And the new family of God are those who are in that family that's built on the foundation stones of the 12 apostles. The other one, we won't read it. In Revelation 21, it's either 20 or 21. Whatever, the end of Revelation the, the new city of God is seen and the foundation stones have the names of the apostles and the prophets written on them. Bless you. So Jesus is starting a new family. So in Matthew 10, here's what happens. In Matthew 10, on your sheet, second quote from the, in the church makes Jesus present section. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Here's why this matters. Those things that Jesus tells the 12 apostles to do, cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. In Matthew chapters 1 through 10, all of those things are done by Jesus. I really should say until chapter 9 because this is the start of 10. 1 through 9, Jesus does all those things. He proclaims the good news. He cures the sick. He heals lepers. He casts out demons. He does all of those things. And then in chapter 10, he turns to the 12 apostles and he says, now you go do all the things that I've been doing. The church is the presence of Jesus in the world. They, the church lives, Christ lives through his church in time. Yeah. So has it been documented in any other form showing that the apostles were performing these I don't know directly. There certainly are other documents in the ancient world talking about the first followers of Christ. We don't have as many documents from that time period as we wish we did. Um, but I'd have to, that'd be a good question for Father Mike sometime. Yeah, Lauren. Yep. Great. That's, that's the important question. Can we come back to that right after the break? Let me finish this. We'll take a break and then we're going to answer that question. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry. If, if I 
Mm-hmm. Great, we will get to that as well. Anything else? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, so John 17, as you have sent me into the world, again, Jesus is talking here to the apostles. If you've, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, right? As the Father sent Jesus, now Jesus sends the twelve. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. An interesting thing there is that word sanctify there is hagiadzo, which is the word to ordain a priest. Luke 10. I love this one. He who hears you, he who hears you hears me, again, spoken to the apostles. Not just anybody, not just a random follower of Jesus. This is spoken to the 12 apostles. He who hears you hears me. And he who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So listen to this. So Jesus talking in 12 says, if anyone hears you, what they actually heard was me. And if they heard me, what they actually heard was not me, but what they heard was the Father. And anyone who rejects you rejects not you, but rejects me. And the one who rejects me not, doesn't reject me, but rejects the one who sent me. So th- think about the profundity of those words. What Jesus says there in Luke 10 is that someone who rejects that preaching just rejected God the Father. That's crazy. Okay. Why don't we take a five-minute break? There's so much more to cover. We'll do our best to get as much as we can. So five-minute break. Okay, are we about ready to start again? All right, before we jump back in, let's just, questions about that, that first section. And we're, we can go deeper about authority. That's w- one of the questions we're di- diving into here is the authority of the church. I don't have to write it. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, so when you say the church. Yep. Good. So what I mean by the church is I mean the Catholic church. Which most, which if you're from a Christian background that's not Catholic, when people usually say the church, and tell me if this is what you're thinking, usually what they mean is anyone who's a believer. So it, it just seemed like most of the times you were talking about the church in all of these passages, uh-huh. you were not talking about things that are specific in Catholic. Yeah. So we have a huge amount of agreement with with other Christians, right? Like, if you, like, usually if, if, if non-Catholic Christians talk to me and they, they want to engage, usually we're going to talk about the things we disagree about, but that's because we know we agree about all these other things and, you know, we're on the same page. So if they say, 
hey, you know, they don't usually fight with me about like, is Jesus God? Because they know that I believe that, right? And they're not going to argue with me about, um, did he die on a cross? Did he rise from the dead? Did he have 12 apostles, right? All those things, yeah. That's okay. Good question. That the church is the only that the Catholic Church is the only presence of Christ. Yes and no. So, so here's let's just jump there right now. So, the the, the short the shortest and quickest answer would be no. That we believe God can be present, and clearly is in Protestant communities. Clearly, right. When you meet Christians who go to big churches or like Lutherans, Calvinists, Presbyterians, Methodists, the whole gamut, right? And I would actually even argue, sometimes you even see Christ's presence outside of Christianity, right? St. Justin Martyr says that in the second century. Um, Justin Martyr says that because Jesus says um, that I am the truth in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Justin Martyr says, when you find truth, you find Jesus. And I actually think there's, there's real truth to that, but it's a both and. So what Catholics believe is this, is we believe that God is clearly at work in our Christian brothers and sisters, very obviously. But that Jesus founded one church. And that is all over the New Testament. Something I almost put on your guys' sheet, but I decided not to. Probably should have. Another passage from Ephesians. So in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 7, even just 6, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to walk in a a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all loneliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he says then here in verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Here's the Catholic point. The Catholic point is that Jesus founded one church. In Ephesians 4, St. Paul mentions seven Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, and like, I'm going to be a little preachy here, so forgive me. Unity is a miracle. Unity is a miracle. My friend, Father Garansky, who died a couple years ago, he would always say, the older you get in life, and this is going to be really cheery, everything falls apart. He's like, your body falls apart, your families fall apart, relationships fall apart. The entropy is real. Things fall apart. And he's like, when you find unity, you know it's of God. Unity is a miracle. What, what, here's a really cool thing that the New Testament says about the church. So God founds one church. 
in the Tower of Babel, remember that story? Remember what happens? That all the people are coming together, but they're rebelling against God, and they build one tower. And what happens? God comes down, and he does what? He confuses the languages, right? And all these languages, they spread out. And then there's no longer any unity. Does anybody know in the New Testament, there's a reversal of that story? Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. In Pentecost, which all early Christians see as the moment the church was born. In Pentecost, you have all the different languages of the world, and they're all present in Jerusalem, and they're all confused. And God sends his spirit and the Holy Spirit falls on, and guess who does it fall on, by the way? And, and Mary. And, and again, early Christians are going to tell us, Mary and the apostles, that's the church. The Holy Spirit falls on that group, and Peter goes out and he preaches, and this huge number of people hear him preaching, and they all hear him speaking in their language. So here's, here's the Catholic point, is that, of course, God can work anywhere he wants to. He's God. But that God founded a church, and he, gave, he actually gave her authority. And here's why. The reason he did that is because the truth doesn't change. This is why. And he promised that he would send the Spirit to protect that one church. This is all over the New Testament. That he would protect it and guide it through time so that you and I don't believe a different Christianity than St. Paul did. We don't believe a different Christianity than St. Augustine did. We don't believe a different Christianity than St. Thomas Aquinas or St. Clare or St. Benedict or St. Scholastica. One faith, one hope, one baptism. Yeah. It's Ephesians 4, 1 through 5. So, this is, so, brothers and sisters, and here's my thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have all these caveats the next section of class, both tonight and the classes coming forward. Here's a really important caveat. I'll probably say it about 20 times because I get insecure every year this time of class that you're going to think that I'm anti-Protestant. I, I am not anti-Protestant in the sense of like, I think that Protestants are bad people. Many of them love God much more than I do. Many of them are better Christians than I am. The Holy Spirit, we believe, is at work in a stronger way in many of them than, you know, than a lot of Catholics, maybe than most Catholics. But I think they're wrong. And in just very straight up, if I'm honest with you, I will tell you this. If I ever left the Catholic Church, I would leave Christianity because I don't think it makes any intellectual sense to be a Christian and not be a Catholic. And I'm gonna show you why. That's what we're gonna be doing moving forward. It's so powerful though, but here's the point. Truth does not change. It doesn't change. It doesn't change, it doesn't change, it doesn't change. Today, if you ask, right, <clears throat> if you ask um, a pastor, if we got 100 pastors in here and we asked them, um, questions about the Bible, they're going to agree about a lot of things. 
But they're going to disagree about a lot of things too, aren't they? Do you know how many denominations of Christians there are in the United States? There's, there's over 40,000 Protestant denominations in the United States. I don't know if that's true or not. There's actually, yeah. But here's the point, right? Yeah. Well, it's because we just, here's why. Because prior to the Reformation, right? So the Reformation starts, again, the, the Catholic Church, as a matter of historical fact, starts with Jesus. Now, people don't like that. And so they try to say, oh, that wasn't really the Catholic Church. And so they'll say, oh, the Catholic Church started sometime a little later, like whatever year they put this out, which is usually, sometimes they'll say 325. Very few educated Protestants are saying that anymore because there's way too much evidence that the church about the year 100 looks very, very, very Catholic. There's there's more and more evidence of that. And so what they're saying now is they're saying, well, sometime between 33 and 100, the church got corrupt and it turned into something called Catholicism. And I'm not making this up. Some of the best Protestant scholars out there who I have a lot of respect for, they talk about Jesus and then early Catholicism like they're two radically different things. Yeah, Katie. The Holy Spirit is is the soul of the church. The church is the body of Christ, and it's a living thing. It's not just, here's a book I pass on through time. It is the body of Christ in history, and what makes it alive is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. And Jesus promises that. He promises that he will send the Spirit. He says, the Spirit will guide you to all truth. When we talk about confession, we're going to see this. In John 20, 21, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on the apostles. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain them, they are retained. Here's the point. Jesus promised, we we did Matthew 16, 18 last time, that the gates of hell would never prevail against the church. In Matthew 28, Jesus promises he'll be with the church forever, for all time. He promises this left and right because he wanted you and I to be assured of the truth of Christianity, right? So, so here's the thing. So the reason I am a Catholic is because if you read people like, first of all, I would contend, and we've done this, that the New Testament teaches Catholic dogma left and right. You just have to know how, you have to know how to know the Bible, but it's all over the place. If you read Christians from the year 100, Right, the easiest one there is a guy named St. Ignatius of Antioch. And I'm going to give you some quotes from him. When you read these people and you say, what's Christianity about? Let's do it the other way. If you ask a modern pastor, and again, not to pick on them, here's where the caveats come in because I don't want you to think I hate people. I really don't. I disagree with them. If you ask a modern Protestant pastor, what does it mean to be a Christian? There's, there's different things they might say, but what might they say? Okay, the faith, right? Which is true, right? Faith is really what it is. Anything else? I mean, Jesus died for you. 
And the, the big message almost all of them are going to have for you is Romans 10.9, which is, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And what they say is the gospel means Jesus loved you, he died for you, he rose from the dead. If you have faith, you're going to heaven. The problem I have with that, one of them, I have many problems with that, but one of them is like, that's a really interesting sermon. If you read people from the year 100 or 175 or 150 or 300 or on and on and on, no one says that. No one says that. And the church, when Jesus talks in the New Testament about his church, right? We say that in Ephesians 5, St. Paul teaches that the church's, what is the church's relationship to Christ? The bride. Jesus has one bride. He has one bride. And people will say, well, it's all Christians. That is the church. Here's the problem with that. The Catholic church teaches that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth, right? He's his representative. Baptists, many of them, teach that the Pope is the Antichrist. Catholics teach that to go to heaven, you have to live a good life of faith and works. Many Protestants believe that if you think works can help you in any way go to heaven, you are going to hell. Many Christians, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans teach, you guys are Catholics, you guys are not, we teach that Jesus Christ founded a priesthood. And that priesthood has authority. And it's actually Jesus living in the church and giving sacraments. For most other Christians, that is blasphemous. Jesus did not found a uh, priesthood. He is the only priest. Priesthood doesn't exist anymore. It's only in the Old Testament. Catholics believe that Mary is the holiest person who ever lived and the greatest of all God's saints and the mother of all Christians. Protestants believe that that sucks and it's idolatry, right? And here's, here's the point. They can't both be true. Catholics believe that God teaches us through the church, through scripture and tradition. Protestants teach in sola scriptura, only the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, it is not true. If that is the one church of God, that is a schizophrenic church. Yeah. Are there any significant theological differences within Catholicism? Not officially, because there's an authority. They do disagree, but there's an authority. So here, here this, is, this goes back to like, why are there 40,000 Protestant denominations? So for 16 centuries of Christianity... It's a little messier than this, but I want to, we can get to that a little later. But essentially for 16 centuries, what happens is I say um, that, let's say, um, I can someone says, I can basically work really, really hard and make my way to heaven by working really hard. And someone over here says, no, that's not true. You can only get to heaven by God's grace. And you debate and you debate and you debate. And today what would happen is two new churches start. Because they disagree. So I disagree with you, you disagree with me, so I'm going to go start my own church. And both of us, and if you ask either of us, why do you believe that? You say, 
because it's what the Bible says. 16 centuries of Christianity, what happens is you debate and you debate and you debate. And what they said is, we can't seem to settle this, but there is a rightful authority that Christ himself gave. And all of early Christianity tells us this, 100% of them. That when there's a theological issue, what happens is there's a rightful authority that God gave in time. Yeah. Oh, it won't be. I don't think. Mm-hmm. I love it. Great question. Very good. So how can we say the church has authority if, it's, if there's corruption and sin? Obviously there's corruption and sin. There's a quote about this on your handout, by the way. Um, I knew you were going to ask that question. Not really. Yeah. Uh-huh. God told me. No, I'm just kidding. So second from the bottom on the back side. This is from St. Ambrose, 4th uh, century. How can the church made up of defiled people be undefiled? First, by God's grace, insofar as she has been cleansed of her trespasses. Secondly, by ceasing to commit misdeeds through the quality of not sinning. She is not immaculate from the very beginning because that is impossible for human nature. It is by God's grace and her own quality by henceforth sinning no more that she appears to be immaculate. St. Augustine, the saints themselves are not free from daily sins. The church as a whole says, forgive us our trespasses. She thus possesses spots and wrinkles. But through confession, the wrinkles are smoothed out, the spots washed away. The church stands in prayer in order through confession to be purified as long as men live on earth, that is how she stands. She'll be sinful as long as she's on earth. But let me really answer it. Authority is not the same thing as being perfect yourself. So here, here's the point. If your boss, like let's say I'm a bad boss, which Mary will probably tell you I am. <clears throat> but if, let's, let's say you're, you have a tr- problem getting to work on time and you're supposed to be at work at 8, and you, you're kind of rolling about 8.05. That was nothing to do with you. And I'm your boss, and I show up to work at 9 o'clock. And I stroll in, and I say, hey, I heard you were late today. Right? That makes me a, I was going to say hypocrite, but thank you, jerk. <laughs> Right? That makes me a hypocrite. I'm a total hypocrite. But let me ask you this. Because I'm a hypocrite doesn't mean I don't have authority. No, it doesn't. Right? Authority is not the same thing as being purified. So the church believes there's two types of, of authority. There's moral authority, which anyone can have. Anyone. And there's authority of office. Moral, now, people in office like me, I have an office of priesthood. We are supposed to have both of those. And we actually believe that priests will be judged more strictly than other people because we have been given a higher office. 
So what a, what a priest should have is great moral authority. Like Mother Teresa had no office in the church, but people would listen to her because of who she was. Right? There's a famous story, Mother Teresa, a true story. In her lifetime, she was invited to Harvard University to speak, and she gave a lecture. And at the end of the lecture, one of the students asked her, they said, well, what's, what do you, what's like the, the poorest country on earth, do you think? And she said, the United States. Because you kill your own children. Now, if I went and said that at Harvard University, what do you think would happen? Yeah, I would be like, I, I wanted something funny to say, but I got nothing. I would be murdered on sight, right? You know what happened when Mother Teresa said that? She had a standing ovation. And I don't think any of those people really believe that, but they did that because of who she was. Yeah. Not in every matter. What the church believes, and this is where the Holy Spirit comes in, is that God, we believe that God protects the church from officially teaching error. Now, that doesn't mean a priest isn't going to get up and say something false. Absolutely, they can. And actually, a pope can teach false things on all kinds of things. We believe that, the, that God, though, what he wanted was the true truth to remain through all time so that all of us would know what it means to follow Jesus and to find our way to heaven. And so what the church believes is that the Holy Spirit protects the church from teaching untruth in two areas, faith and morals. So like Pope Francis wrote an encyclical, um, uh, what's it called? Evangelium Gaudium. And he talks a lot about the environment and where the environment's going. Now you could make an argument that like he's speaking on morals there and that's fine. But, but, but his scientific statements, if he says, you know, this is what's happening in science, Pope Francis is not an authority with science. He is an authority on faith and morals. And we believe the church, the, the Holy Spirit protects the church. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to show you this. The, the, the reason, and let me say this, the reason a lot of Catholics leave the Catholic church is because they go to Mass on Sundays and the sermons are awful and the music's terrible and they had someone who's a Catholic who treated them poorly. And, and millions of people are leaving the Catholic Church because of that and also because they don't understand usually this because it hasn't been explained well by priests in the last generation. People who become Catholic they become Catholic because they study history usually. There's, all, there, there's this wild thing right now. A lot of Protestant seminarians are becoming Catholic across the country because they're reading about the early Christians and they realize they were all Catholic. How, I have no idea where the heck we are. And I, don't, I just I don't know why. This is my life. She's got one, yeah. So, 
Seven extra books, yep. And there was even other stuff that wasn't included. So what are what are the process feelings on that if there's so much scriptura but it was edited in the first place? Like what are their thoughts on those other things that could have included but weren't? Well, it depends on who you talk to. And the question is about those seven extra books. It depends on who you talk to. Like if you talk to scholars like N. T. Wright, for instance, they are all gonna think those seven books are hugely important for understanding the life of Jesus. But there's a mixed bag. Most non-Catholics, and most Catholics as well, have no idea why we have seven more books. Absolutely no idea. And so, so there's just debate back and forth. When that happened with Luther back in 1517 and he got rid of those seven books, he didn't know as much about the history as we know today. Yeah. It seems like it wasn't necessarily. Anyway, I like the Catholic version. It's, it's, you got to wrestle with this. You have to wrestle with how do we know these things? And the questions I'm going to push, and I know I'm pushing buttons for a lot of you, and like I, I don't do it out of, to be hard, but these are important things, right? Like today, if you ask, if you, if you ask someone who's an evangelical pastor and you say, when Jesus is at the last supper and he says this, and he takes a piece of bread and he says, this is my body. And he's, and you ask him, you say, is that literal or figurative? What is he going to say? He's going to say it's figurative. Jesus doesn't really mean that. It's a symbol. Catholics teach, teach he really does. How do you know? Because Catholics can say, the Bible says it right there. And I'm going to show you, Jesus says it not just there, he says it all over the place. In John 6, 53, he says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. There's going to be all kinds of stuff. I'll show you how the early church believed it. But part of the reason I'm a Catholic is because if you read the writings of the Christians in the first century, They believe that that's the center of Christianity. The absolute center. If you ask St. Augustine in the 4th century, if you ask St. Francis in the 11th century, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 12th, on and on and on, St. Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th, they all are going to say the same thing, and that's powerful. So my contention is this. Can we do one last thing and then we'll be done for tonight? You don't really have a choice. Here's one last thing that might make sense of this. What is Jesus' number one topic he preaches about? What? Not love. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. Do you remember that line? That's from uh, Happy Billy Madison. I love that line. The guy gets the answer wrong. He's like, I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. It's like the best line ever. Anyway, so Jesus' number one topic is the kingdom. Number one, by far, not even close to anything else. All through the gospels, Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom. And I hope you've seen in the last time that Jesus' kingdom is the Davidic kingdom, right? He's the new David. 
He is the Messiah. That's what that means in Jewish thought. So in the kingdom, right, there, there, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about one of them next time. There's a role in the kingdom that is, is all throughout the Old Testament, and it's something called the Albayit. And the Albayit, that's Hebrew word. All means over, and Bayit means house. So it's the one who is over the house. A good translation to the modern world would be someone who's like a prime minister. In the Old Testament, the prime minister, the Albayit, his role is when the king is gone, he's the number two in the kingdom, and he runs the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom while the king's away. What does that sound like in the Catholic Church? That's the papacy. And that text, and this is why I want to close with this tonight. And I know tonight, I know there's like, I know you probably have 20 more questions. I hope you do. Write down your more questions. We're going to hit this in depth next time. We're going to keep going as long as it takes. Matthew 16, 18. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You, it's pretty hard to find a phrase that has more authority than that. If you really want another one, though, in Luke 22, Jesus tells the 12 apostles that they will have 12 thrones in his kingdom. In Luke 22. But anyway, okay, so papacy, keys to the kingdom. And he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, right? You bind something on earth, it's bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Huge authority, massive authority in that, in that passage. Absolutely massive. When he talks about the keys of the kingdom, there is only one parallel passage in the entire Old Testament. And it's Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. It's easy to remember. In Isaiah 22, 22, the keys are taken from an all by eat and given to another. Right? Jesus is the new David. He's the new king. He's a Davidic king. He also has a prime minister. And he sets that up before he goes to Jerusalem to die. And right, one more last thing is right when he does this, right when he does that, then he says, now I'm going to Jerusalem and now I can die. Why? Because the kingdom has a prime minister. Yeah, Katie. Yes and no, but that's another topic. And that's, that's more, that's John's, it's, it's in the synoptics, but it's in John's primarily. Okay, I feel like I opened 30 cans of worms tonight. I hope I did. Bring it back over, have a great Christmas, come back. We will dig through that can of worms together. Lauren. Okay. I don't know. Are we doing a new translation there, Father? I'm not sure. Um, 
I haven't stayed up on the news. I know Pope Francis has been like talking about that. I just don't have a clear answer yet. Yeah. yeah. I just saw that. I was just curious. Well, anyway, let's talk. Good night, everybody.